welcome to Accessories. My name is Minty from Leeds, artist, sculptor, and milliner to the Queens. And you have a special invitation to join me on a fashion goose chase through the world of high art drag, performance poetry, and tactile propositions. Yes, indeed, we're back to cure you from fashion indigestion with a bit of warmth and intimate conversation with the people genuinely shaping visual culture in the UK. It is so exciting to be sat here introducing episode two in a very change Britain. Drag Race UK has ended. Um, so it's locked down to an extent and um, a lot's changed and so has our lineup. We've got four more fabulous artists joining us this month, including Gothi Kendall, Harry Freegard, Khadija Ibrahim and Corey Mullaney, who each have really unique and interesting intellectual relationships with fashion and the fashion industry. And I can't wait to share these interviews with you. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce my first guest, who is Khadija Ibrahim. She has been such a creative force in the north of England, touching people's lives with poetry, performance and visual art as you'll soon find out. She's had a career that has taken her to all sorts of different countries, working in America, Def Jam, she's met the Queen, she's done a TED talk, there really is nothing that this woman can't do. Utterly inspirational and now one of the most important voices in British literature. But it all started in fashion school. It's Khadija Ibrahim. Hi, Bandami, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I love what you're wearing for this interview. I wish everyone could see. I'm, I'm definitely going to upload a picture to the Instagram account. Yeah, well, you know, I thought I'd give you a bit of a, um, an African crown, you know. So this headpiece is called a gele, which is a, an African headdress. And usually they're, they're from Nigeria. And usually they're warm when you go to very special occasions like weddings and christenings, you know, those kinds of events. Um, and I thought, well, this is a special event. Why not put on the galet? Yeah, like wedding special occasions. The recording of Accessories episode two, it's got to be well, done. Well, you know, <laughs> I want to give you a little bit of um, fashion. <laughs> What's really interesting about them is that they're handmade, you know, so it's, it's, it's this beautiful kind of embossed material mm -hmm. that almost feels like paper. So it's a, it's a cross between paper and material that it's stiffened. And so they can bend and twist it and fan it and create these wonderful headdresses. And so that's what this is. And then I have on my, my beautiful kind of um, blue and gold fanned earrings. And then I have on um, an African printed um, dress. Yes. <laughs> oh, you look an absolute vision. You look gorgeous. As always, uh, when I actually started putting this podcast together and I was thinking about the people that I wanted to get on and talk about their relationship with clothing and accessories, I was like, I know someone that always puts on a show because you're not just uh, a poet that writes on the page. You are a performance poet and you have this strong relationship with theatre. So you can't have theatre without, you know, a visual. Is this something that you think about when you're performing poetry, how you present yourself and how you dress? Yeah, I mean, it's constantly part of um, who I am as a, as a live artist, as a performer, as someone who writes, as someone that graces the stage on various occasions. But um, I do want to let you know that in my um, earlier life, when I left school, I actually did my studies in fashion design wow. and textiles at um, Jacob Kramer College, which is now called Leeds College of Fashion and Design. 
you know, so I, I did a two-year um, diploma, B-Tech diploma there, and I studied pattern cutting, I studied fashion design, and I studied textiles, because it was something that I grew up with. My grandmother, as well as my grandmother's profession as a, a, as a nurse, she was also a seamstress. She came from Jamaica. She's part of that Windrush generation. And so as a child, being in, being in her home, she always sewed dresses and, and curtains and things. And she always made wonderful designs for me. So it was something that I've always, you know, I've grown up with. I've always had the fondness for um, fashion and design. And so when I, when I um, left school after doing my A-levels, I really knew that I wanted to go into the arts. And I always knew that I wanted to work in theatre and I, and I adored poetry and I'd loved the idea of performance. But there was something um, about fashion at that time that drew me, but also nobody in school could guide me towards theatre and writing at that time. So the best option for me was to enroll into fashion school. And that's what I did for two years. But I didn't know that about you at all. Yeah, and I actually worked as a designer. <laughs> it, it shines through, but I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's my, you know, it's, it's really one of my passion. I, I worked as a lingerie designer, and then I worked uh, for a couple of years as a, as, a, um, as a buyer of textiles. And so it's always been there. And then eventually I went to the thing that I really love, which is live arts and performance. So I'm always conscious about what I'm wearing, how I dress, how I put things together. It's really part and parcel of the artist's um, display, you know, the visual, the visual language of the artist. Yeah, a really strong visual impact. It's all part of the package and the mood and the dream that you're kind of presenting. It's all part and parcel. That's right, yeah. So it's really interesting that your journey has kind of started in fashion and has morphed into a full theatrical, uh, the language. The, I know that you do work in visual art as well, like you've featured visual work in museums all across the UK. That's right. And it's a real testament to how all these pieces fit together. And if you are a visual artist, you make these choices with an artist's eye. And I think that really comes across with the way that you present yourself. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say with, the, with making those choices with an artist's eye, because that's, that's really what it is. So as much as I'm not working in fashion anymore, I still make it an important aspect of my work. So whenever I'm thinking about the visual aspect of working with maybe museums, maybe creating installation pieces, it always incorporates textiles. And um, there are stories that you can tell through textiles mm -hmm. that become part and parcel of the extended social language of the people. And you see that through poetry, you see, you see that through various narratives in theatre. So, you know, I'm very conscious of really bringing all those metaphors together to create something that can tell, that can give us a story. So as an example, um, one of the things that I'm really interested in is the textiles of um, tartan. A little bit of punk influence coming through there. Do you know, I'm, that is exactly what it is. There was this, this love of what mm. was happening in the 70s with the punk rock movement, the, the reggae movement, but also that rock against racism movement that brought all those genres of music together that we could, we could actually say that through music, 
yeah, we could come together and combat racism. But that's also part and parcel of the fashion. But um, I was very inspired by the early influences of Malcolm McLaren as a designer and um, and also Vivian Westwood. And still to this day, she, she remains one of my ultimate favourite designers. And I remember being at school and going, I'm punk, I'm punk and wearing safety pins, you know. But the, the actual love of tartan comes from that, but it also comes from the fact that my, um, on my mother's side, they hold a Scottish surname, which is McLaren. And so I became really intrigued with that name, McLaren, mm -hmm. and attaching where, where that name came from in Scotland and then looking at the clan, but also attached to a clan is usually a tartan. You know, so it really took me on this amazing journey of kind of finding that tartan yeah. and then extending that and looking at the African origins of my ancestry, which is West African. And probably we can place it to Ghana or Congo or Nigeria. We're not quite sure here because of the detachment. But in Ghana, they have this wonderful material called kente cloth, which is a woven textile, which is very similar to the tartan. And so that started this journey of looking at the, the woven tartan and its language that's attached to a clan and a name. And also you find that in the kente cloth as well in, in Ghana. You know, there are, there are different ways in which it is woven, the colours, yeah. you know, that, is, that can be attached to not necessarily a name, but, um, but a community. And that really started my journey of really looking at textiles in a different way. And then that woven textiles took me to look at what was happening in Kenya, just really what's happening around, around the world with that type of design. And then I took that back to looking at what was the fabric and textiles of Jamaica. And there is this beautiful madras material, it's called madras, and you find this madras material across the Caribbean, and each Caribbean island will have their own madras. Now, that madras material actually comes from India and was brought by indentured labourers from India to the Caribbean, and indentured labourers were brought into the Caribbean just after the abolition of the slave trade and when the colonisation was taking place and they no longer felt the need to enslave Africans. So I'm from that legacy. And so what that madras does and what that kente cloth does and what that tartan cloth does is it tells a story of travel and migration and the coming together of communities. So I find myself in this East Indian madras material, which is actually attached to my grandmother, who, um, whose grandfather was East Indian, born in Jamaica. And then this McLaren clan, which is then on my mother's side. Um, my grandmother I'm talking about is my father's side. And then this kente cloth, which binds it all together through this African um, migration of the people into Jamaica. So I've always been intrigued by these fabrics. And then also, what, what do we do with textiles? We dress ourselves beautiful with textiles. So this is, this is kind of the journey that I take when I'm thinking about my writing, yeah. when I'm thinking about fashion, when I'm thinking about how can I work with textiles in a space mm -hmm. to retell a story? How does it connect to the wider community? And how does it combine us all together to tell a story? Whether it's through the punk rock movement, whether it's through Malcolm McLaren, you know, uh, whether it's through um, Rock Against Racism, 
or Vivian Westwood, or whether it's it's through that that travel of um, slavery. It's so deeply interesting the relationship between these tartan patterns and their connection to clans in in Scotland, and that's something that a lot of British people can immediately uh, recognise. Yeah. And then when you mentioned this Kenty cloth and the different types of Madras materials uh, in, in other cultures, even British students of fashion yeah. may not be aware of this happening. Uh, and it's so amazing that you can bring that together and yeah. kind of produce your own visual identity that has a reference to Vivian Westwood. Vivian Westwood uh, recognised the potential of these materials communicating punk and um anti anti establishment that's right and yeah kind of putting your own spin on it it's it's fabulous to hear about um you did touch a little bit on family and when you read your poetry you get a feeling that your family instilled quite strict and yeah. victorian like values on you when you were young <laughs> so did that mean that you were something of a rebel growing up <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say part part rebel and part good girl. <laughs> you know, um, rebel as in um, really understanding what that anti-establishment was all about at that time. Growing up um, in the community that I come from um, in Leeds, which was predominantly an African-Caribbean community, but it was very diverse and very mixed. You know, with the, you know, you had the Asian community, you had the Irish community, you had the um, Polish community, the Jewish community, everybody living side by side where, where I grew up. And so there was no real separation, but there was a distinction in culture. And so what was happening at the time is that there, there, was this, there were these several uprisings that were taking place when I was in school. And these were the riots in the 1970s and the early 80s, when mainly black youth were saying that had, you know, that had enough of racism, that had enough of institutional racism, that had enough of um, unemployment, that had enough of um, being um, arrested, stopped, stop and search, their homes being raided. Just and then there was the National Front Party, the British Movement Party, um, where you couldn't walk in certain areas or you had to be in your home at a certain time. And these youth had really just had enough. And so I was too young to be part and parcel of any of that activity. But I was an observer of the activity and I knew people, I knew families that were part of writing at that time. But And, you know, you go to your bed and you wake up in the morning and your area is practically in ashes. The smell of smoke, turned over cars, you know, and you have to quickly understand what that is, what's happening. You have to quickly understand what are they fighting for? What, what is, you know, why, why all of this? And so I came from a very um, disciplined household, I must say, especially and more old fashioned values. So when you talk about Victorian values, that was really through my grandparents. You know, they were born in the 20s. And, you know, my grandmother was born in 1920, 1924. She arrived in England, I think, around about 1958 or 59, something like that. And so she came with, she came to England as part of that Windrush movement. And she also came understanding that England was considered the motherland and the Queen was the Queen. And so she grew up with those values of respectability and honouring and, um, and actually um, loved 
those values, but she also understood who she was as a Caribbean woman. She understood those things. Whereas my grandfather um, was also part of that, but was more of the rebel, more of the, the protester, the activist. So I grew up with all this activism happening in the home, meetings taking place. They were preparing for protests. They were preparing to march. Placards were in the home. And I was only a child. And so there was not really much understanding that I had of what was happening, but I knew it was happening. And so the narrative that was coming to me as a young child was understanding my rights yeah. and being prepared to um, not physically fight for those rights, but being armed with the knowledge of what my rights were and those values. And... That's what my grandparents taught me, and it's what my parents taught me. My, my father um, of that time was probably considered a very well-educated man. He was, you know, he's a professor of physics and chemistry. And so he was very much into ensuring at least that we, um, we were well-read. Yeah you know, and that we were, that we were well-educated. So part of me was, was that, but the other part of me was, was rebel, as in getting older, going to a high school where I was um, one of two black girls in the whole of the school, amongst a sea of people that claimed their allegiance to the National Front Party and the British Movement Party. And I was called a array of different names, you know, and it was my first time going to high school and actually understanding what racism was. I didn't understand at the time because I'd never faced it in the community that I grew up with. Everybody lived side by side, you know. The lady across the road was Irish and she was called Auntie Irene. And, you know, she had six kids, my mum had five, and we all played together, you know. And um, the man round the corner was uh, Mr. Din from Pakistan and we bought food from him, you know. And the, the, the other man was um, was called George and his wife was Mika and they were, they were from um, Poland. Do you understand? So there was yeah. that real rich of diversity going on and so going leaving my community which was between Harrods and Rounday and taking two buses all the way to Bramley um, which is the other side of Leeds where there were hardly any people that looked like mm -hmm. me <laughs> you know I've been called names was I then had to be that rebel in understanding who I was and that I wasn't going to tolerate the name calling so you live this life that is connected with such a range of creative disciplines and connected with education and constant growth. And you get to that point where you are actually not the person brave enough to pick up the book, but the person brave enough to write the book. And you are published as a poet. Do you know that... Um, I've always been interested in the photograph that you use on the front cover of your collection, Another Crossing. Who is it in that picture? So that beautiful photograph of that woman is actually my mother, Gloria. Uh. And, um, and I really made a conscious decision that in that collection, um, that, that was my first full collection. I'd published the chapbook collection before. Um, but with this full collection, I really wanted the picture, something that symbolised um, the fact that I'm here and I was born here. And I was only fortunate to be born here because my mother migrated here. And then uh, that picture is laid against um, Kentycloth, yeah? That Kentycloth. So that Kentycloth is an establishment of my African identity. Because I, I, you know, when people say, when you're filling out these forms, are you black British? Are you black Caribbean? Are you black African? I'm like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually African yeah. Caribbean 
born in Britain. Yeah. So really that book is, is about being all of those things and, and the stories that my mother still tells me today. And so she had to be the picture on the book, the symbolic picture on the book, in all her fashion, looking very beautiful. And that picture was taken, I think most likely around about 1962, something like that, that picture was taken. Because um, I think she arrived in England between 1961 and 1962. So it was the early stage of her arriving in England and attending a wedding. And I just think she looks absolutely stunning. And, and I wanted to look at that image of black and white photographs, black and white photography, where things were not just black and white, but they had layers of colour. Sometimes it was sepia. You know, so, and sometimes it was things that we couldn't quite see because stories could fade out. But we could renew those stories by investigating um, the past. And so that's what Another Crossing is about. It's iconic, the front cover. I really love it. And when I look at it and I, I see the flower in her hair and the car that really gives it a timestamp, I think about photographs of yourself throughout your life and how you will have been dressed yeah. differently in these different environments that you've been in. It's really quite exciting to think how that photograph has been used as a front cover of your collection and yeah. how new photographs exist of you as a student, as an educator, as an artist, with the clothes that you wore in these environments, you in Egypt, you in Yemen, you in yeah. America, and you in Leeds as well, the way that you dressed and the environment that you were in. And I'd love mm. to see those photos together. Like That's an essay waiting to happen, a visual essay. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, you know, my relationship with clothes is so important. It, it, it takes me, I have to think the day before what I'm wearing the next day because mm -hmm. it just, and some days I get it right and sometimes I get it totally wrong. <laughs> sometimes it's all trial and error. Well, you've got to make these decisions. I mean, there's not many people that you get to speak to and you can ask, oh, how did you decide what you were going to wear before you met the Queen? Oh, wow. Well, well I'll tell you, that was, that was just such an um, interesting moment in my life, receiving that invitation and actually thinking it wasn't for me, even though it had my name on. <laughs> no. I did. I was, wow. like, I was like Buckingham Palace, you know, the royal stamp on there. <laughs> I was like, and my daughter was like, there's a letter there for you. I think it's from Buckingham Palace. I thought she was joking. <laughs> and then I... <laughs> it does actually sound like an April Fool's. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and then I went to look and I went, oh my God, it's got the wax seal on it. You open it. And there was this invitation that... Um, well, the event was a hundred poets that represent Great Britain and that the Queen was honouring a hundred poets across um, Great Britain for their um, contributions to poetry. So we were hand-selected very, very carefully. And, um, and I was, you know, you know, there's thousands of mm. poets in the UK, you know, in England. And to be amongst, you know, that top 100 to meet the Queen and, and be in her presence. Well, they got value for money when they chose you because yeah. you turned up looking stunning. Well, I would tell you. <laughs> I mean, aside from, aside from the years and years of work you've done and the poetry you've produced, yeah. they got value for money with the look. Oh, child, let me tell you, <laughs> I was like the fashion, I, I, I thought about it really, really carefully. And I thought about what was I going to buy, what was I going to wear. And then I had this, um, I'd just got back from Ghana that year and I had these beautiful garments made. I love um, African-inspired 
printed fabrics. It's all part of the narrative of the way that I love to dress. It all tells a story, you know, and um, and I love to promote aspects of that. And I love to use the, the, the prints in unusual ways. I put my outfit together and I got to the palace. And I remember um, Lem Sisse, who's a really good friend, poet of mine, brilliant poet, you know, I admire him a lot. And he looked at me and he went, oh my God, if I only knew, I would have worn something African inspired. <laughs> I always remember him say, saying that to me. It just came so natural to you. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, a piece of Africa inspiration up in Buckingham Palace is all good. Perfect. <laughs> you know, Amazing. so that was, that was the outfit that I... Um, but it was a very conscious few days of making the decision, pulling it on, looking in the mirror and matching it with all the, the earrings and the accessories, the shoes, the handbag, the everything. I can say your wardrobe at home must be massive. It, it really is. I, uh, <laughs> I actually can't fit everything. <laughs> because if you, if you go through your photos on Facebook... There are so many, um, there's carnival outfits that are just amazing, like show-stopping yeah. outfits. Yeah. How do you store those as well? Like, among all your other beautiful clothes, it must take up so much room. Yeah. With great difficulty. These houses, you know, in Britain, we really need to redesign the way we build houses. Yeah. We need to build closets, you know, dressing spaces. So people say, you need to get rid of some of your stuff. And I'm like, No. no. What I need is space to, to hang yeah, them. Yeah, it's too precious. It's too precious. But I have a walk-in closet and I have my clothes categorised a little bit. So these are, these are all like the headdresses that they'll have a place. These are the, um, the long African-inspired garments that they're really long. And I know that these garments only come out on special occasions and they can only come out probably once for the year they can't they can't come out twice <laughs> well i'm really honored that you've won won this yeah. for today's interview and i really appreciate it you look beautiful and as a milliner it's uh, it's my fa honestly uh, headwear and what we do with the face and yeah. earrings and hair yeah. and, and all things that are things I guess you're interested in as well because oh, yeah. in your TED talk you talk about uh, black hair and the beauty and, and the potential and how yeah. it's such a shame that historically there's been western ideals pushed on black hair and, it's yeah. and it causes such problems for black hair yeah it does and when you actually allow it to be natural and, and use braids and, and all these things you can actually really really express yourself with it the idea of beauty is really turning on its, on its head now where you find um, black women loving their hair and styling their hair in particular ways and really promoting that as, as something that is beautiful and acceptable. And I think that's so important for self-confidence as well. Right. But also the accessories that come with doing your hair, the beads, you know, the, just these whole range of things that you can do, and the headdresses that you can wear. You know, there's just so many things. And you talked about carnival. You know, carnival's for everybody. You know, and it um, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter how you define yourself. It's for everybody. And the richness of Carnival is really celebrating the, the emancipation and the freedom of the body, you know. And then its longer history is the emancipation of the people in the Caribbean from slavery. And so there are these wonderful narratives attached to it. But it's also about body beautiful, how one um, dresses the body 
and shows the body in this beautiful regalia of feathers and beads and gems, you know, and, and that is actually carnival becomes that, that symbolic thing of, of saying everybody's body, everybody's look is so beautiful and here we are showing it. We're dancing, we're parading through the streets. And I think the nearest thing that I see to anything like that is probably, you know, you might you might go to um, the Gay Pride Day, you know, and you see um, so many people mm -hmm. saying, I'm here, you know, accept me. And if you don't, well, that's your business, <laughs> you know. And so it, it, it's that kind of, um, yeah. it's it's the same in that sense, it's about the body, it's about being present in the space, it's about being seen, it's about helping people to understand that everyone is unique in their own way, but there's this sense of integration that should be taking place regardless, you know. So, I, you know, that, that's what carnival is, and, and that's how, also how I see fashion, you know. Fashion is about dressing the body beautiful, you know, and feeling beautiful and, and feeling like, I, you know, I, I'm so excited when I go shopping. Do you actually think that fashion is a better place now than it was even 10 years ago? I think so. Partly, I, I think so. Um, but there's something about fashion in the 80s that was so brave, you know. And the thing mm -hmm. with fashion, fashion, fashion changes and repeats itself. Um, it's not linear. I can pull out things from 20 years ago. I pulled out, actually, my daughter pulled out a biker jacket. You know, I came from that era in the 80s where biker jackets and Dot Martin shoes and Levi 501s and big belts, you know, was the, was, and the flat cap was the fashion, you know, and flying jackets. And I kept my, I kept all my Dot Martins and I kept my biker jacket and um, a couple of my vintage five -oh, Levi 501 jeans. And she pulled out the biker jacket one time and she was like, oh my God, it's like at the back of my wardrobe. And she pulled, searching through my stuff, always looking for something because she too is inspired by what I wear. And, and there is that continuous narrative that runs um, between myself, my daughter and, and my mother, you know, and the way that, the fashion goes round. It's so funny because then things end up in my mother's house because maybe my daughter's worn it. She stayed at her grandmother's house and she's left it there. And it's been there a few years. And then I start seeing my mum wearing and wearing my stuff and I'm going, where, where did you get that from? She goes, it's mine. I was like, no, it's not yours. I, I remember buying that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> got a very fashion-forward family. We really, no, we really, really do. And, and <laughs> we have these jokes in the family that if you're getting married, you know, especially my brother's, they're getting married. Can you inform the women that you're about to marry that um, your sisters or your, your, your niece is coming or your mother's coming and that the fashion might be over the top and not to get upset? <laughs> we do, you know, and we're not trying to upstage <laughs> the bride or anything like that. It's really interesting how the decisions that your mother made when buying these clothes in the first place have in turn inspired you and said something about your identity when you've picked them up. And again, when your daughter's done that to things that you've bought, like it really does speak to fashion being cyclical, but also not only that, it's a way that we build and kind of complete ourselves and, and actually understand our identity through visual objects. You know, I wear a lot of rings, I wear a lot of bracelets. I, I always have something around my neck, whether it's beads or something, you know. I think that adorning 
my body is very important. You know, I have piercings, I have waist beads, you know, um, toe rings. I do all those kind of things, you know, and I, I just think it's something quite beautiful. And there is this, um, in the, uh, the Arisha, the practice of Arisha, which comes out of the Yoruba culture, and um, the Arisha are, are all these gods and goddesses, sky gods and goddesses, river gods and goddesses. Oshun is the goddess of the river, and so it's, it's sweet river waters. And um, she's, very, um, she's very beautiful and very sexual and very soft. And she wears lots of beads around her waist. And she's very adorned with all her regalia and all these things. And very, um, very seductive in how she moves along the river. And we, you know, in that Orisha culture, you can take on aspects of those gods and goddesses. And then the other goddess is Yemaya. You know, she's, she's the goddess of the sea. And so what's really important about her, she, she, always, she always has um, a mirror. So she looks at herself, like Oshum will look at herself in the mirror and look at her beauty. But Yamiya has all these shells. She's the mother of fishes. She's, she's, all, she's so beautiful, but she's fierce. Yeah, so if you, um, if you affect her in any way, she'll have all these crashing waves and then she's soft like the ocean and then she's fierce. She's all these things, but she's very beautiful. And her colour is blue. When you travel to places like Trinidad and Cuba, those places, they take on those goddess appearances and they'll tell you, oh, today you're moving like Oshun, or today you're moving like Yemaya. So I always get that. I always get attached to me. Oh, Oshun is your head, as in that's what you're embodying, that spirit of Oshun, or that spirit of Yemaya. And I wear those colours, so the blue, the yellows, you know, the silver, yeah, it's like armour for me. You know, this is what I love about you, Khadija. I knew I'd get you on the show because I love your fashion. And every piece that we zoom in on, the, it's chosen like, it, it's almost as concise as a poem, the reason why you've chosen these pieces. Oh, thank you, my darling. <laughs> so, I, you know, I like to embody, have an embodiment of, of those goddesses because there's so much more to them apart from just the beauty. These are stories that have persevered and lived through the way that you've dressed. And I think that really, that really symbolises the melting pot that goes on when you put something together. It's stories that are yeah. Um, yeah. thousands of years old and stories that are from the 80s. Stories right. of all That's these cultures, right. all these places that you've experienced and belong to. And then uh, fashion designers that you've liked over periods of time and it's amazing how those can come together it's only really in fashion that you get applauded for doing that it's it's been yeah. so lovely having you on the show Khadija. oh you must welcome and I feel like we could go on another hour we could just speak and speak and speak about fashion because there's so much untapped I'm delighted to hear that you were a fashion designer as well it's something that I didn't know and uh, it's amazing to hear but it's so obvious now now I know it yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness me. And I had I had a great time and we met, you know, we travelled to Milan, we travelled to Paris. It was just amazing. We travelled to New York. It was just absolutely amazing. So yeah, but it's been a pleasure speaking to you and um, I hope that we can catch up soon. 
So I could spend the rest of my life talking to Khadija, as you could probably tell during that interview. I was completely enamored by her life and the way that she holds fashion as such an important part of her practice. It's not something you always associate with writers, but with Khadija being a performance poet and a visual artist, it really makes sense how she drew upon her early fashion education and certain materials that meant a lot to her growing up, like the Kenty cloth and tartans became part of the front cover of her first published collection. So a testament to the emotional connection that we have to fabrics and fashion objects. <laughs> I love it when I meet someone whose relationship with fashion reinforces my belief that fashion is this sort of spiritual and untouchable relationship that starts the day we're born and put in baby grows and ends the day we're buried with an outfit that'll probably outlast our skin, teeth and hair. Hearing about how Khadija and her family are so comfortable with dressing up and having fun with clothing and creating some sort of standard for being experimental with clothing, it's almost like having the confidence to have a freedom with the objects around you, a playfulness and almost like a realisation that your stake in this world is just the way that you interact with the people and things around you and allow to be part of your narrative. After my interview with Khadija, I got to thinking about how spirituality relates to clothing and how almost everyone refers to fashion as something that's cyclical, that repeats and goes on and changes and references itself. But as an atheist myself, I believe life has a beginning and an ending for each individual person. So by that logic, fashion constantly outlives human experience. When Khadija told me about a leather jacket she bought when she was in her teens, being worn by her daughter, then in turn being worn by her grandma, thinking it was hers, it made me think about the arrow of time and how we respond to fashion. And it's not like a sculpture that we expect to outlive us, it's a garment that's part of our lives for a very finite time. And whether we pass it on or not, it represents a timestamp that can never happen again. And when there's a resurgence like of 70s or 90s fashion, for younger people, that is the first time they've experienced this firsthand. And while it's blasé to people that have seen it before, that's the first time it's been part of another person's arrow of life. So, interesting. On the topic of time, it's time to introduce our next guest who has a very special relationship with clocks, frocks, and the midnight knocks of angry next door neighbors. Sorry, that was a really shit introduction, but it's a fabulous interview and I get the whole family involved from the house of Kendall. It's Gothy. Who is that? <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thanks for joining us on Accessories. No worries, darling. Always a pleasure. I want to talk to you a little bit about the character of Gothy that you've created and like your relationship with objects because the show's all about accessories and like the fashion artifact. And when I think of Gothy, I think a lot of people think of clocks and um, and certain like icon objects that kind of go along with Gothy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't know if I've ever like like at the start you said like the character and the idea of gothy but I wouldn't actually say that they are someone different to me if that makes sense like I pull so much inspiration from things around me and all the things that I think are feminine glamorous attractive 
and put it on myself. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a different person. It's just an extended facet of myself, if that makes sense. When it comes to like objects and things like that, I've like collected antiques and restored antiques like for so many years. And I really like the idea of like transforming something that is probably not its best and transforming it back into its best self. And maybe that's sort of what I do with my drag too, if that makes sense. I think there's definitely a sense of translation that comes across when you look at your drag and the way that you tell stories. I, I remember seeing, I don't know where it was actually, might have been on Facebook. You posted a picture of uh, your grandma's hairstyle that she wore for a night out in Paris. Yeah. And you recreated that and I, you wore that as your entrance look on Drag Race. Yeah. Um, so I was, she had passed away a, a few weeks before, well, her partner had passed away a few weeks before, um, I went to Drag Race, so we went to the house to go, obviously, uh, look through all the bits, and I found this box of photos, and I saw this photo of her on her honeymoon at uh, Moulin Rouge in Paris, and I, she had this, like, triple-stacked bun and then, like, this little 60s flick, and I was like, that is, like, the campest thing I've ever seen. And she wasn't, like, a camp <laughs> or ostentatious woman in the slightest. Like, she was very humble. Um, but to see her, like, in Paris at Moulin Rouge with this ridiculous hairstyle, I was like... Oh, that is so fab so to sort of like reinterpret that in a more contemporary way like it was it was almost like a hat on my head you know what I mean like it was just ridiculous um it's funny because the hair is almost like a fashion object like I love like the idea of a found object inspiring something that we make and that's kind of like uh using your own hands as like a 3d printer it connected with you and you translated it and put it on tv like that itself is quite a remarkable response to something I just really wanted to like pay homage to her but I always think of hair as like a sculpture anyway I think a lot of people see it as this sort of like I don't know, like hair is hair, do you know what I mean? But you need to actually look at it in a more sculptural way and like think about the sort of shapes you can create, the sort of silhouettes that you can create and the kind of things you can build on your head, do you know what I mean? I always think of some people as having like a way with words, but when I look at gothy and like where you've come from, I think of you as having like a way with shapes and a way with design language. When was it that you realised that you had like your own creative voice and this kind of way with shapes you've got to look at things in a different way like people look at hair to be like pretty but i look at it in like a sculptural way and the same with like corsetry and things like that like you've got to think about pushing like silhouettes and shapes as much as you can to be as ridiculous and as like ostentatious as possible like i'm it, it's not inspired by a woman in the slightest it's inspired by just silhouette and shapes and ridiculousness but i, I don't know when it really came about i'd say Probably after Drag Race, when I knew that I had a little bit more money and that I could experiment with shapes a little bit more than I was before, I started going to people that I knew would be able to help push the vision that I had and be able to make it a thing because I'd always been quite like hands-on and things would be quite rough. Um, and I think after Drag Race, I found like my creative voice because I could actually do what I wanted to do because I had other practitioners around me that would be able to help me do it. You say that, but even going back to like your earliest drag looks, like I think of when you used to go out in Leeds and you would wear like things that you pretty much found and pieced together. I think even then, like you had a voice as like a curator or like you were able to put things together in a way that was really making the best of them. Even wearing like jogging bottoms to like a club appearance and it still looked like... It still had a point of view. Exactly. Yeah. 
yeah that's true i guess before drag race i used to curate because it was always about finding the, the objects that i could within my budget and after drag race it was about creating do you know what i mean was there a point in your life where you purposefully started to bring this voice together and you say that you didn't have a character but choose to present yourself in a way that was more performative I feel like I've always been a creative person even when I was at college I was always wearing stupid things like really really tall buffaloes like 80s show suits like bleaching my hair dyeing it different colors like I've always been quite performative in the way that I used to dress and I think that slowly started to develop into a drag character because just because it seemed like the natural progression thing to do I was around people that were quite feminine and doing drag and it just seemed like the natural way to push out that sort of creativity and that femininity into like a, a certain other thing rather than myself every day. What city was it in Leicester that you were doing? In that? Leicester yeah which was quite that I think that's what like sort of made me do it a little bit more is the fact that it was a really like rural town that I used to live in um and obviously you know like every gay boy story is they lived in a small village and they didn't fit in and all this but it's true like I feel like having those sort of constraints makes you just want to like be even more outlandish in what you do so yeah definitely like around the time when I was like when I was gay and there weren't really any people around me that were as feminine presenting as me you know the, the gay boys at school sort of still hug around with the lads and all this kind of stuff but I, I just wasn't that kind of person so yeah I'd say around the time of like coming out as gay I knew that I was a bit different and obviously coming from a small town you end up using the internet a lot and like you find people and started using Instagram as well but now you've kind of, you've had this experience yeah. where you've come into your own. As you say, you started working with practitioners and you can really express your voice. Do you feel like you've changed the way that you use Instagram and the internet? Yeah, definitely. I think, like I said, like, like you use the internet and Instagram to find inspiration and source people that you can sort of relate with because there's no one around you that you can relate with. Whereas now there are so many people that are sort of doing this. I feel like I like to put things out there to inspire people rather than be inspired by. Do you know what I mean? Especially now with Instagram as well. I feel like everything has to be not like a, not like a publication or like something that's published, but it needs to be at a certain level where people are like, oh, that's like actually quite fab. Like I'm not going to use Instagram like a Facebook mum to like catch up with Karen across the road. I, I want to like do things that people are are inspired by and want to take bits from and just do something a bit different with. We have um, Corey is appearing on this ep same episode as you and yeah. we spent a lot of time talking about how the images are quite autobiographical and how kind of brave you've got to be to like put this across and share it and when you're making these high art images even to put on Instagram mm. it's putting a lot of yourself into it and showing a lot of yourself yeah that's yeah that's really true actually do you feel like that's what you're doing with your output yeah, at the minute yeah definitely especially working with Corey too because you can have this idea in your head of the look but then it's also the whole sort of fantasy of it all do you know what I mean and he's a really good person at help knowing my vision in my head of what the look is but also the context that that look is in so yeah definitely you are putting a lot of yourself and a lot of the idea that you have in your head into a, just a single image which is that's just the world we live in now isn't it <laughs> yeah we were speaking a lot about the image that you shot in what looks like a hotel room and the use of shadow and background for someone that's become 
quite exposed. Like you have quite a, a big platform. The style choices that you make are quite, you know, mysterious and dark and obviously gothy. It's hard to balance those two parts, you know, to be a mysterious yeah. person and also have lights shone at you. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And especially because the images that we create, they're not the usual like beauty selfie that you're putting on Instagram. They are like, they've still got a real point of view and quite like a dark point of view as well. Like it's then like people like a ring light and a selfie in it. Do you know what I mean? Like they're like something really brightly lit so they can take every single facet of what you're doing and just like study it. Whereas the photos that we're doing, they're not close ups. They're quite far away and it's about the whole thing. Um, and I think there is a slight disconnect for people that are wanting just beauty photos. Um, but at the end of the day, if they're not liking that, then they're not a fan of my work, so they shouldn't be following me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you about lockdown and uh, how it was difficult to be a queen during a year where you can't leave the house. Yeah, I found I really did struggle with lockdown because you, you go from doing the thing you absolutely love and getting these ridiculous opportunities that are amazing and that you just want to like grab and they all get taken away from you. Um, and there was definitely like a real disconnect between me and drag for a long time, I'd say until like the past couple of months, because I just didn't want to do it. I like to do drag when I'm like challenged to do something cool and creative and given a new opportunity. And I wasn't getting those and there was no way for me to get those. So I really felt like I had to put drag on the back burner, um, which is a shame. Yeah. Lock lockdown was hard, especially being a queer person and a, someone doing drag, you realise that everything that you do is actually quite disposable. Do you find that you started to express yourself in different ways when you weren't able to have the live element? Maybe, yeah. Um, I feel like because I'd been doing drag so intensely for six months, having actual time to like come away and realise that I am still myself as a boy and not just gothy if that makes sense because everyone is a fan of gothy but not me you sort of like reconnect with yourself and I started like restoring clocks again and furniture and things like that going back to the passions I guess because drag has always been the first passion I remember speaking to you years ago about your interest in like interior design it's really nice to hear you say that part of your passion for drag is taking things and making them the best they can be like, I think that's a really beautiful way of looking at drag do you see yourself applying that to like other art forms in future? Like, could do you think you could yeah. expand your like drag ethos to doing interior design or doing something else? Yeah, definitely. I always feel like I can turn my hand to anything creative. Like, it's it's just what I, I was born to do. Like, there are people that curate and there are people that create, and I really like creating and. I'll, I, I can do anything. It's what I'd love to do. And I think the idea of transformation is definitely something that I'm good at as well. So, yeah, definitely. I'll do whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I would always touch on this slightly already. So your interest in clocks, does it have any deeper meaning? Like, are you interested in altering time or do you have a special relationship with time when you, like, put your looks together? <laughs> or is it purely, like, the artefact of a clock? Because it's quite a curious and like unique to you thing. I started with, so the the hairstyle that we spoke about, the grandma like triple set bun, she was the one who got me into 
being interested in clocks and quite curious about them. Um, and she had this one on her sideboard that hadn't worked for years. Um, and when I, I think I was like 11, I restored it for her and it was on her sideboard. Um, and she left it to me in her will. And after that, I was like, do you know what? Like, I actually really do enjoy, like, the idea of, I, I just love clocks in general, like the noise they make, the ticking. I just, I, I actually love them. And I think that's why I like mid-century things as well is because the, that clock was like mid-century as well. And it's always been like a sort of like reoccurring like style that I really like. But I think it's funny you say that because all of like the drag looks that I do are always influenced by something like historic, if that makes sense. Like a, like maybe it's a historic silhouette or maybe like a certain colour. Um but I've never really analysed it like that before. So I love the beautiful image of uh, you and Rehab sat on the clock. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, that was inspired by, so I went to a trip to Liverpool and, you know, the Royal Liver Building, it's got this huge clock on it. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be fab if like that, like we were like, like Peter Pan, like sat on one of the hands or something. And I then I messaged Corey, I was like, do you think we can do this? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we just did it. But it was fab. Do you think that there's different eras of gothy or different renditions or do you think it's just a drag persona that runs parallel with you and just grows with you i can definitely pick out eras i mean just before drag race i was wearing a lot of black all the time and um, black wigs but i think now there's a new era every month because i like to bring out a different like element or different idea that i've had in my head of what gothy should look like or the kind of thing that i should be doing so yeah, there are definitely different eras. Um, Drag Race was the flop era. <laughs> no, I, do you know what? That's again touching back on something that you said is taking something and making it the best that you can be. Like taking your experience on TV, and fair enough, like you didn't win the season, but you've come out and you've been able to develop the universe that you live in and think about how your mind's been expanded like you're thinking i can utilize these other practitioners around me you're completely changing the way that you use instagram and like it sounds like you've sculpted like um like a future out of that and that is making the best out of what thing can be yeah there's just a, there's a certain way to like look at things i was like given a huge platform and i think to not like grab that and carry on running is such a huge mistake and i've seen so many people do it um but i've seen so many people also go down the path of like what is expected of them and i think that you should always take an opportunity and make it your own don't just do the same old boring crap no one wants it do you know what i mean like like just be yourself that's the whole reason why you got on the show and it's the whole reason why people like what you do so just keep doing it do you know what i mean and take it further and talking about doing what's not expected like when you brought out um switch i was like i was so gagged i mean <laughs> it's not that i didn't expect it to bring music out but the like the, the way that the song was is just was was so fab and unexpected and like the it appearance was... from Davina I just I loved all of it oh I'm really glad you liked it well I, that was the thing as well like during lockdown I was so like creatively exhausted and just like was struggling to be the idea of what gothy was in my head so I was like how what is something I would never do and I was like oh, make a song but make it like as like stupid as possible so I messaged Davina and I was like look I want to do this. Like, let's let's just do some at camp. And I'd say that's one of the biggest experiences I've learned from is like that whole music production and like album cover and working with people that have 
she has so much more experience than me and she really has like held my hand and helped me sort of learn and yeah it was great I, re- I actually really enjoyed that that sort of like relit my fire into doing drag again I love it and you actually got a clock on the front cover and the lyric suck my ass which I just think is putting a gothy twist on it no it's not suck it's slack <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah <laughs> right um I've <laughs> before you go I've got a little surprise for you God, why am I so nervous <laughs> <laughs> We're going to play a little game I've devised called Who in the house? Who in the house? Who in the house? I've gone through the house of Kendall and your extended drag family's Facebooks. And I found some choice quotes and it's up to you to identify who in the house said that. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. Okay then. (laughs) So, who in 2016 was described by a friend as Morrissey with pink hair? Smiley virus. (laughs) No, no, no. That was rehab in 2016. <laughs> That's a nice, easy one to start with. Morrissey. We get more cringe. Morrissey oh, with pink hair. Like, as, well, it obviously wasn't easy because I get it wrong. Wait, hang on. Like, as a boy, though, because he wasn't doing drag then. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a boy pick. I've gone quite far back here. <laughs> okay. Oh, God, okay. Okay, who made a comment about Manny MUA modelling for Maybelline saying this? Like, I'm happy it's a man, but like, come on, could there be a more obvious choice? Why not pick someone who is better at makeup and not a dickhead? Also, he has gross fingers. (laughs) (laughs) I actually hate all of us because that could be any one of us. Um, I don't know who's the biggest bitch out of all of us. Was that Smiley? It was Smiley in 2017. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> God. Okay, this is a, a deep oh. one. Talking about their taste in music, who says, Yeah, I like soft stuff and I like heavy, but only when it's perfect and the pixies are winky face. Was that from like 2008? Because what <laughs> the hell was that? Um, <laughs> 2013. Uh, who would say something ridiculous like that? Maybe, maybe Sminty. No, that one was Bay. Oh, God, of course. God, she can choose someone's ear off about nothing. <laughs> Who shared a five-minute craft video of someone making dresses out of towels and an iPhone charger tidy out of a hair bobble with the caption, one for you crafty queens out there, four kisses? <laughs> Me? <laughs> exactly, it was you in 2017. Was it really... <laughs> I'm a crafty queen girl. <laughs> <laughs> Who in all caps said, fuck me, a guy wearing a choker. Whoa, no, too crazy for me. He must be a homosexual. Chokers are for girls, not boys. Wowzer, for fuck's sake, this article. <laughs> um, sminting. No, that was Smiley, 2017. Oh, <laughs> she is just such an arse, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd just done it all about Smiley because seriously, that was an absolute goldmine going through. 
she was probably writing them all hungover, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Who said, hello, ladies, does anyone have any advice on how to deal with an irritating neighbour? She must have knocked on our door complaining about us laughing about 10 times in the past month and bangs on the door at 5am complaining about the noise of our boiler. We have explained to her enough times that there's nothing we can do about the boiler or having to wash our makeup off, but she's really becoming unbearable. <laughs> that was definitely me. And her name was Susie. That was you, Sminty and Rehab living together in 2018. God, she was absolutely unbearable. She was horrible. She just always knock on. One time she was knocking on the wall, she was like, can you give it a rest? I was like, we're just washing the makeup, washing the makeup. <laughs> uh, did you shout back through the walls? Of course we did. Normally out the window, to be fair, but we were very drunk at the time. So. <laughs> oh my God, that is such a... I would love to have been a fly on the wall to see you take on some old woman. <laughs> No, she wasn't even old. She was like 35. What a, what a loser. <laughs> right, okay. And then we've got... <laughs> uh, oh, no. We're going to go for one last one. Uh, who just wrote, shimmer over brow cover, sad face. Me. You're right, that one was you. <laughs> well done. I think you got, you got a good few right there. That's quite impressive. I got about 80%. We're just all arseholes by the sounds of it. Oh, well, God, it's been so nice to have you on the show. Thank you for talking to us about clocks and how you've grown as an artist. Aww. It's been a real pleasure. No, it's been so fab talking to you and catching up. And thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. Bye. Bye. It was so fab catching up with Gothy Kendall and really interesting to hear about how post-drag race she was enabled to unlock a new type of creativity within her. Also really interesting to discuss the difference between being a curator and a creator and how that has been a journey for Gothy. I remember seeing Gothy host nights in Leeds whenever I'd come back home and even then she had such a magnetism and star quality. She'd make a pair of Adidas tracky bottoms look like a real editorial decision. So when she uses the phrase making things the best they can be, it really chimes in with my first memories of Gothy. And it's really cool to see her shine now. She's in her own lane. She's got some elements that are distinctively her. And one of them has been the pork chop of UK Drag Race. Next up, I'm joined by someone who is an oddity in the fashion industry, someone who's so warm and unique and funny while having a CV that boasts collaborations with Balenciaga, Dior, Vivian Westwood, and even making films for Gucci Fest, which is just amazing. But you'll be glad to know I don't ask Harry about any of these things and instead opt to interview him with stupid sound effects, encouraging him to lie about his life story. It's Harry Freeguard. Hello. How's it going? Stunning. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. I need to let everyone listening know that we're doing a very special interview where Harry's got to adapt to certain sound cues and make his life story either a little bit more boring, a little bit more dramatic, or just put an extra little spin on it. But you don't need to worry about that, Harry is going to lead us through. I'm the one that needs to worry about it. So let's just get started. Starting from scratch. Whereabouts are you from, Harry? Um, I'm from Wiltshire. Really boring. Oh, right. Okay. Wiltshire. What was it like? Green, grass, boring as fuck. Left at 18. Okay. You say left at 18. Where did you end up Um, going? Straight to London. 
naturally, as one does. As one does. Okay. Whereabouts in London did you move to? Um, well, I moved Wiltshire straight to the sunny Islington off of Caledonian Road, if anyone knows it. It was gorgeous. What was it that attracted you to London? Like, what made you think, oh, I've got to get out of Wiltshire. I'm probably not going to be a farmer. Uh, I'm going to pursue something in the big city. Well, actually, you know, saying I wouldn't be a farmer, I actually am very much wilderness boy. Like, growing up, I was very, like, wilderness boy. But what attracted me to London was St. Martin's, of course. Lol. Right, okay. What do you mean you're a wilderness boy? Spent loads of time in the world. <laughs> That's what we do. Wait, sorry, you spent lots of time... <laughs> Lots of times in the woods, sorry. Yeah, I just spent loads of time in the woods, like, li- like genuinely, like, just hung out. Oh, right, okay, no, that's cool. I had, like, a grappling hook when I was, like, nine. I was a wreck. <laughs> What's a grappling hook? When I think of grappling hooks, I think of, like, a tool that you equip yourself in, like, a video game. It was well, essentially that, but it was an army-grade grappling hook used to climb things. It was a, a huge metal hook on a green rope. Right, so, and you used to take that out and kind of just abseil and just kind of go for it. Yeah, you climb trees with it. It was sick. <laughs> All right, okay, great. Um, I'm going to move on to the next question. <laughs> What's the most boring job you've ever had, Harry? Oh, my God. Um, it's hard to say. I've, I've only had one, like, quote-unquote real job, and then everything else was, like, fashion jobs um, and, like, interning. But the, I would... I don't know if it's most boring. I, no, it's not. It was really good. <laughs> it was really good. Actually, it was good. I worked at Debenhams Cafe. Well, actually, no, it wasn't good. It was fucking awful. But it was funny. We would just like throw teapots down the food disposal, so it break, and we could go on. We could go on a break because we'd fuck it up and destroy the machine. What? It was awful. We used to have to clean things. I'm so confused. I really hope that's true. So you, you used to work in Debenhams Cafe. You know that I've done little stints in Morrison's Cafe, and that is just, like, one of the highlights of my professional life. Can I just say I hate Morrison's? That's a stunning story. I love that for you, but I hate it. What is it about Morrison's? So I only went recently because I love supermarket clothing. I think it's gorgeous. I know there are moral implications that are not necessarily great, but cheap and cheerful but I went to Nutmeg in Stratford because someone was like there's a Nutmeg in Stratford a stylist I went with and then it actually did smell it sounds like your stylist friend is from Leeds as well by the sound of that impression you know what he is definitely northern I think well northerners love Nutmeg I've got to tell you that like uh, I proudly wore Nutmeg to the last interview I did I have a Nutmeg jumper (laughs) this is from Nutmeg Oh my god, I love it. How much did it set you back? Um, it was £6 in the sale and it's pistachio green. It's like a really cheapy acrylic jumper. It's fucking awful and it's really itchy. You should have told me I get 10% off. <laughs> How was your experience at Nutmeg Cafe? Nutmeg Cafe. Morrison's Cafe, was it? <laughs> no, it's not. No, Nutmeg Cafe sounds really quite nice. That's kind of like a Chiswick name for a cafe. Mm. Um, no, uh, it's Nutmeg Clothes and just Morrison's Cafe. Uh, yeah, it, it was fine. I, I still work at Morrison's now. Do you? Yeah. Oh my God, I'm a key worker. Proud as punch, me. That's camp. It is camp. So this is your first ever podcast. Will you tell me now um, what you're wearing? I'm wearing... I'm wearing something really gorgeous. No, what are you really wearing, Harry? Speaking of supermarket clothing, I'm wearing a jumper from George that I cut the collar off, uh, some T-shirts from M&S, and a necklace from the beach. Oh, did you make it yourself? Yeah. No, I didn't. It's from the beach. <laughs> actually, the other one I did make myself. It's actually made from, you know, the elastic from um, 
masks. Yeah, I do. I've heard of <laughs> from, them. From masks. I thought I'd be like eco and made a necklace out of it. That's really cute. The, the video quality is not good enough for me to actually be able to see it. I think you could describe it in great detail. It's a gorgeous plictrum with a, like a psychedelic rainbow of a marijuana leaf. And then the, oh, nice. the, the necklace next to it is a wooden heart that has like an enamel painted dolphin over a tropical scene. Oh, I absolutely, I do, I love that. In one of your previous interviews, you described uh, yourself as really doing the bare minimum. Is that true? <laughs> um, I have a feeling that is from an interview that I actually hate. Really? <laughs> is it from an interview that was on an, a website that begins with the letter D? I think so, yeah. Because there is an interview that was written by someone that completely misconstrued everything that I had said. <laughs> I do not do the best. I work very hard to make it look like I do. I work very hard to make it look effortless and like it's irreverent and just thrown. But it takes a lot of fucking hard work. And that interview just made it look like I just roll out of bed, which it takes forever to do this. I know, I know. It's uh, It was quite shocking. I read it and I was like, that's not the Harry that I kind of know from from CSM and stuff. But yeah, I thought you were just, I actually thought you were trolling the interviewer, like, or just just playing with them, or you were like, I don't know. Well, uh, an unknown fact is that St. Martin's wanted to have that interview removed. Oh, really? Oh, I love that, a little scoop. What about the video you did where you were pulling things out of a box? Do you like no, that interview? that was also awful. <laughs> that was a really terrible interview, I have to say. They were just like, open this thing and like, read the word, but then just don't say what it is. And I was just making it funny. And the word was like grapes or something. And they were just like, no, but speak as though you're explaining what grapes are to like an alien. And I was like, what? Like, that's not funny. People don't want to watch that. And no one did. It got no views. Oh, I was really worried that uh, when I said I'm going to start playing sound effects to you, you're going to think, oh, no, I'm, this is the box thing all over again. That's exactly what I thought. I knew you would think that, but here we are talking about Morrison's Cafe. That box thing was a good day, though, because Lil Nas X had just been there before me, but then also Soju, that drag queen, was there. So it was kind of a camp I, day. Ah, love that. Do you have a favourite accessory? You've already shown us um, accessories that you've made. I have a deep passion for accessories. I really do. I'm a hoarder. I keep pretty much everything I buy for years because I know I'm going to like it again at some point, even if I decide to hate it. Currently, I'm really into animal-shaped bags. I'm always into animal-shaped bags. A favourite of mine is a Dachshund bag by Ella Marsh. But favourite accessories, that's difficult. My most recent favourite accessory is, it's like a little, it's essentially the length of a hat pin, but it's like it's shaped like a dart. And it's wow. from Butler, which I adore. I like things that are useless, almost. Like, mm -hmm. what do you do with that? I yeah. like to shove it in necklines, but that's kind of it. It kind of fits with the... No, I agree that it fits with, like, the Oscar Wilde definition of art. Like, as soon as it starts to serve a purpose, it's kind of like a uh, role of art diminishes, if that makes sense. So, like, in theory, the mm. more useless, the more artful something is. Absolutely. I love useless things. That's why I love tiny bags that don't fit anything. Mm -hmm. Apart from, like, maybe a pair of, like, eyelashes. Yeah, just AirPods and Coke. Sick. I was going to ask you, who were you, who were you rooting for in Drag Race UK? <gasps> Bimini, off the bat. But also, I loved Tia Coffee. I thought Tia Coffee was really funny. Yeah. She needs justice. Did anyone ever approach you and, like, try and get some, like, free clothes or something from you, like, when they were going on the show? Um, no, but I have many friends that have had, have been approached by the queens that have been on UK Drag Race. People don't often, um, come to me for clothes because I just, I'd never lend them to people. Whenever people ask me to borrow stuff, I just say no, I can't be asked to get out. Do you say no politely or just no? 
I used to, and now I just kind of because they when I say no politely, they often send another email and be like, please. And I just now I'm just like, sorry, I'm not lending currently. Bye. Fair enough. I don't like the stuff I have that they want to borrow, and I don't want them to shoot it because I think it's ugly now. Yeah, and then actually, if it goes out and like it's seen by lots of people, the steam's already been taken from it. Yeah, and if someone like if if it was be seen or worn, and then people, oh my god, it's so arrogant to say, but if someone would be like, oh my god, I want to buy one. I'm over it now. I hate it. You can't buy one. I'm not going to touch it because I don't even want to look at it. There's no chance of me making one, mm-hmm. which has happened before. I have to be like, no, sorry. I hate it. Do you know what? I kind of feel that. But the problem is I'm mainly a milliner, but like once you make like a hat block, it takes you ages. And the idea is you make it so you can repeat the same shape and have mm-hmm. like signature shapes. But I'm the sort of person that I make it once and then I don't ever want to do that again. But it means that every hat that I make costs me money, even if I sell it for like £200. That's awful. But true, I completely sympathise. So, Harry, what was the toughest thing about working in fashion through lockdown? Um, that's difficult. I don't know. My life didn't change much in lockdown. I already worked from home, so, like, not much. Are you sure it didn't change for, like, the extreme worst? No. Actually, I think it did. It was really bad because what, what ha- um, the park was shut and my house burned down. And my house burned down and my dog was held at gunpoint. Okay. Is your dog, like, with us still now? No, she's dead. She was killed at gunpoint. That's really awful. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> I've been held at gunpoint, by the way, shouting out to Paris. No, you have You can't. You actually haven't been held at gunpoint, seriously. I have actually you? have. That's genuinely not a lie. In Paris, oh my God, whereabouts? It was the night. I, it was the. It was the night I moved to Paris. I was held at gunpoint, <laughs> and then I went to dinner. Wow, tell me about. <laughs> I was walking along in Paris. Uh, we were going to a restaurant, and then um, uh, I was with Guy walking along, and we got held at gunpoint. And then later that night, we went to Masha's house and just had a party. Oh my God, did you not feel like kind of fucked up all night, like really on edge? Yeah, but then also, no, because it's giving me a great story. I love it. That's what I love. I love an updated story. Problem is, it's mixed in with your house burning down now, so no one knows if, if it's real. House didn't burn down, but there have been times when I'm scared it will, because the living room is lined in tinfoil. I lined my whole house in tinfoil, and every now and then I'm scared there's been some kind of electric fuckery and I'm going to fry and then the house is going to burn. We actually burned down our student accommodation and it made the news in Manchester. It was really bad. Oh, lovely. Yeah, and the worst thing is I used to go out in drag with, like, masks and I had to black out my eyes underneath so I didn't look, like, human underneath the mask. And I came out of the fa- the building that was on fire with my mask off and just a black face and people rushed up to me to make sure I was, like, not burnt. Oh, fuck. <laughs> That's good, that. Yeah, it was really dark. Sorry. Interesting little tidbit. Mm. Do you have um, a go-to Harry outfit that you would like to be buried in? That's difficult. I'm a weird person. I've, my entire life, I'm like, my mum's told me this since I was a kid. I always go in like stages. I go in these weird transformation moments. So to have a signature outfit for the all overarching is hard because there've been so many like eras. Like currently I'm doing this kind of like weird boho boy thing. But my go-to outfit previously, because I wore basically dresses and gowns and stuff for about seven years, exclusively doing my trousers for like seven years. And then um, being fish, um, contentious word, but my go-to uniform at the end of that period was like a mini sequin dress, 
But I choo- I actually hacked up a bunch of those dresses, my iconic looks. One of the looks actually is iconic and it's been put into this dress, which is a Franken dress of all these dresses. And it's the dress I wore when I was held at gunpoint and that's why it's in this dress. Lol. Wow. So maybe it's that. I really like that dress. It's just like a weird Franken dress. Um... Currently, I don't know. There's not many people that get to say that. Like, my uh, burial outfit is the dress that I wore when I was held at gunpoint. If there was a runway theme, which mm. was uh, Night of a Thousand Harrys, what looks would you like to see represented on there? Off the bat, I'm going to have to say this a salad look. I once wore fresh vegetables and salad to Vogue Fabric. So I'd like to see that, but I'd also think it would be really funny yeah. if everyone just came out in a little secret mini dress, just all of them the same. Yeah, that would be really cute. Just a variety of colours like the Saturdays. Yeah, oh my God, yeah. I'm ready for the... The Saturdays really had that down. That's like one of the least inspired like band looks ever. Let's just all wear like a different colour. And a coloured tight. Yeah, but it's actually like so bad it's good. And I don't think they were going for that. I think it's fantastic. Do you have a favourite Saturday? Mm, Difficult to say. I think Frankie definitely shaped culture for me. In, like, 2009, everyone wanted that... Was it even 2009, 2007? Everyone wanted that hair. That definitely shaped hair culture. I'm going to say Frankie. Okay, then, I've got to ask you this. Yeah. Do you feel like you have to constantly protect your voice working in the fashion industry? Yeah. (laughs) Which is a great thing that I'm doing this podcast and just chatting absolute shite. Do you, um, is it something that you constantly think about? Like, is it, does it like pervade your thoughts and morning, noon and night? Um, not morning, noon and night, but it's definitely a consideration. I think everyone has to be careful. Especially if you've got like a rebellious cheek. Exactly, it's hard. Because it's, it's almost like, yeah, it's almost like a contradiction in terms. Like yeah. if, if you are, um, and a unique voice in fashion, you've got to be like kind of, the palatable, unique voice. Mm-hmm. Do you find that? Indeed, especially if you wanna want anybody to pay you. For real. Mm. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> you directed a film for Gucci Fest. How was that experience? Um, it was really... Play the one where I can lie. I had the best time. It was so thrilling. Shouting out to Gucci. <laughs> it was fantastic. It was one of the best experiences of my life. I definitely wasn't cold while filming it outside over two days. Whereabouts did you film it again? I was so basically, well, not only did I write, direct, cast and produce that, I also did all the location scouting. So I actually shot it um, in like around Hackney Wick in these like uh, decrepit old like... Um, building yard things because I live on Victoria Park and they're like they're just behind me really so I kind of walk past them every day and I thought let's go around there and it'd be fun and it wasn't <laughs> how long did it actually take you then so two days was like filming was two days and then I'm guessing you had to like edit and do everything yourself film well I didn't do everything myself I worked with the amazing Luke Clayton Thompson who it did who was film man and editing and sound who's incredible love working with him um he is great but it was two days filming but I did sit with him with the edit actually that is true oh my god yeah I forgot I forgot that that was grueling I hate things like that I like just do it and it's done film is a kind of a fairly new medium for me I've only done a few films that's why they're all a bit shit um because it's very new I'm much more I'm much well versed in more, more tangible mediums yeah I find it much far more um of an ambitious thing to do like a video for myself I find it so confusing I think it's because I'm ADHD but um what did, what was even the question I just rambled 
I was asking you about the film that you made. You actually touched on um, what I wanted to know about your tactile propositions. Like, that's a phrase that you use. How would you break that down to someone that wasn't very bright? Um, so I like to use the term hypotheticals and tactile propositions to, in abstract terms, describe what I do. Because I often get asked what I do or what I am. And it's hard to say because I kind of do everything. So... I like best to put it as hypotheticals and tactile propositions because I, I'm a very ideas-driven person. If I could make money off ideas, I would sell yep. them. Um, I wish I could. Someone please buy them. <laughs> um, so hypotheticals in that sense. But also hypotheticals to me, it's like events, things that happen, things that are intangible. And then tactile propositions is anything that I make that is a physical output. So it's anything that I create. If that's a collage, if that's a... Uh, installation if it's a product so I kind of do everything so that's my abstract wanky way of saying I can do it all yeah when when you look at your work it's very it's very visceral and and it's very you and almost uh, it doesn't need much explaining it exists in like a universe you've created and that's kind of like how I engage with your projects and that when I look at them but then when I see the way that you describe them it reminds you of like the intellectualism behind it so I wasn't sure if if it was like a little bit tongue-in-cheek when you kind of come up with that phrase to describe what you do well yeah I mean it, it definitely is tactile proposition like it sounds sexy but it's also like clever yeah. <laughs> it's real. like clever but like really sexy fun <laughs> also you talk about uh, wanting to be able to sell ideas like that's the dream well do you have any other like career goals that you could summarize in a sentence like that well yeah I mean that is the ambition but I think that's so difficult to, to achieve um I mean selling ideas is like the pinnacle of everything because I'm really jealous of how musicians get to make work is how they kind of just like put something out and it's just this free thing and I'm always trying to find what is that thing that I can put out that's free but also has like a return and in my mind that's ideas in some sense but I'm like still trying to work on the return. Would you say that you lecture you work at you work for CSM as well so that's like another flip side like education is like part of kind of not selling ideas, but, like, nurturing artists. True. That's something I actually really adore. David Capo brought me in to St Martin's. I just graduated, and he brought me in, so I think I was still 23. And I was teaching, um, it was on the postgraduate course, so everyone was older than me, and it was really awkward. So I had to go and be nasty to everyone and tell them their shit. <laughs> and they're all like, I'm 30. And so, I, yeah, I do a bit of teaching this morning. And then uh, the wonderful Sue Fulston um, brought me in as well to teach on some of the BA courses. But I also have, I teach um, head in Geneva, brought in by wonderful Bertrand. And then also did recently be doing a little pop-up number at Westminster. So I'm all over the shop doing a bit of idea exchange. But yeah, I love nurturing ideas. I love chatting. I love chatting about ideas. That's my favourite thing. That's the thing I miss about being at university is just being in a room full of amazing people talking about fabulous ideas and just getting it going. After you're out of there and you're in your own studios, it's so different and so isolated. I obviously have that with my friends, but it's different when it's new people, fresh ideas. It's just, I like it. I like when people come to me because I'm a bit of a creative problem solver. My friends always come to me and they don't know what to do. I think it's just my way my brain works. And I like when people come to me with their ideas, even if they're awful, I'm like, let's spin this. And half the time they will, and half the time they won't spin it, and I'll end up just hating it. But yeah, I, I, I have a thrill. I get a kick out of teaching. Oh, it's um, it's nice to hear you say that. And also, do you have um, any, like, you say you had to go and be nasty to postgraduates. Do you have any, like, sentences you remember saying that you 
thought were like funny or like withering like put downs because one of my favorite things about um like fashion school is like panels and like facing them and hearing the comments do you have like anything do you remember saying and you were like oh that was like either iconic or like harsh in a funny way um not that off the bat that I can remember that was like particularly iconic I don't know I'd have to cast my mind back I mean I, I the, the student has cried but I don't think it was directly because of me <laughs> um <laughs> people cry yeah it's meant to happen no I, I know what you mean it wouldn't be the full experience like just everyone else on mute and someone crying that is literally it like- happens it happens um I don't know if there's anything I've said I'd <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not intentionally cruel. I just say what the news is. I sometimes Google it. Like I go on Reddit and say, um, panel day, harshest critiques. And I love reading There them. are incredible ones. And I do remember lots, lots of them probably can be uttered on a public forum such as the podcast. Um, but I have, there are many that me and my friends always discuss. We're like, can you believe that was said in that crit? Um, which I love, and they're so camp. But also, talking of, like, critiques and blah, blah, blah that you just mentioned, have you seen that video of Teddy Quinlavin that went around the web ages ago? No. It was, like, on Tumblr, where she, like, snaps her painting over her knee <laughs> or something in a crit. No, I would love to see that. You need to send me a link to that. It, yeah, I'll, I'll find it. It's gorgeous. Uh, Harry, are you a spiritual person? Yeah, I literally am. Can you tell? <laughs> no, I'm just curious. Um, oh, no, I actually am a spiritual person. I, uh, I'm a crystal person. I love crystals as a child. I've always been, as I said, I was very outdoorsy. I'm like woodland person. But yeah, I'm... Uh, I just thought you were going to say Christian then. It was just as soon as you started, you were like, I'm very... Crum. Oh my God. <laughs> I was like, I'm very Christian. But you do have a very Christian kind of, the way that you dress is very Christian and the way that you hold yourself, it's very kind of like... No, 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 sorry, I just wanted to see how far I could take that. I might say, thank you. Tell me more about crystals. I love crystals. I love the universe. Today is a new moon in Aries, which is a fantastic day. Oh. Um, I actually, oh. I knew you were going to ask me about having headphones. I literally just had a psychic vision. I was like, headphones. Oh, that's good. But it was only like 15 minutes before recording a podcast. I don't know how spiritual that is. Hang. In my head, it was just like headphones, headphones. And I was like, whoa. And then I was like, I bet he's going to fucking ask about headphones. And then you did. Intuition. <laughs> I love crystals. I love crystals, love the universe, love manifesting, all of that business. The thing is, I feel like when I've always been doing that my entire life, but then when I got told what it actually was, that's when it became like difficult. Because I was like, oh, this is real. And it's like actually really hard. <laughs> if you could manifest one thing for the future of fashion right now, what would it be? For it to stop. Um, I don't know. <laughs> fashion. Um, something interesting for once. Something interesting. Giving young designers and young people some money and some control and some power. Maybe. I don't know. Not even that. Like, let's shops. <laughs> I don't know. There's loads of things. Yeah, there's too much. There's too much to do anything, so we should probably just leave it as it is. Yeah. Let's just burn it down along with the house. Right, Harry, it's been so nice to speak to you. Uh, I really appreciate you going along with my ridiculous plan and uh, hearing about your life and your positive affirmations for the future of fashion. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Right, I'll catch up with you soon. Thank you so much. Ciao. 
So that was one of the most chaotic but fun interviews I've ever done. And it was great to chat to Harry about his life. It's so interesting to speak to a creative that's emerging in such a big way into the fashion industry and realize that there is that tug of war between keeping the anarchic and irreverent spirit that makes your work so special alive and having this relationship with high profile brands and needing to be paid. If you don't already, you should check out Harry's iconic Instagram account, harry.bradshaw, that's Harry with an I-E. Also follow all our guests on this month's show, including Khadija Ibrahim at khadija.ibrahim and Gothi Kendall, queen of Instagram herself. Next up, we're joined by someone who has collaborated frequently with Gothi and has a real unique relationship with presenting their work on social media. An expert in airbrushing and building the perfect image using sets, lighting, and all sorts of editing trickery. This artist is a master in capturing that subversive, perfect moment through photography and can pack as much story and impact from an entire film or play into just one snapshot. It's Cora Mullaney, who is an image maker, director. There's so many things that you do. Actually, would you be able to tell us how would you describe your craft, Corey. Yeah, I mean, yeah, here I am, photographer, um, I guess also a visual artist. Yeah, the base of it really is just photography, started with like self-portraiture and a bit of everything as well, I guess, more than the photography, like having to do all of the elements of it myself. So it's been a lot of like learning things as I go as well, but definitely like the baseline of it is being a photographer. I was thinking, what's the best way of explaining the way that you work? And all these words were popping up in my head. I was like, oh God, is Corey like a collagist? Is Corey like a director of movies that don't move? I thought it was interesting that you said collagist. No one's ever said that before, but it does kind of make sense in a certain way, I guess. Even just like, just describing my work as like surreal, because a lot of people say that it's surreal, but I don't really think it's that. It's kind of like real moments that are just really dramatic, really over the top, really just kind of like exaggerated. And I would say like more recently, collage work is like a really big part of what I've been doing, working with other people and trying to do really grand, big sets on a budget with no money, because <laughs> that's, that's what you've got to do to try and pull it off. And working at home, there's only so much you can do. And I think that if you're working with like the tools you've got, in a way that anyone that survived this year has become a collagist by accident, just from having to make it work. Yeah, definitely. Even just not, not being able to go and shoot with people and having to not being able to go on location really but I've, I've always like kind of shot in my own living space anyway so it's not really been a huge issue for me but it's it's definitely like given me a lot of things to learn having been forced to do that now. Earlier you mentioned that people often describe your work as surreal and you don't know how that sits with you because you feel like you are actually presenting reality but just through a different lens. Yeah I always found that like a familiar term the surrealism but all of my images, like everything that is in them, it might seem quite random to like everyone else, but to me, like everything in it tells a story, everything in it's there for a reason. So like every prop, every like color, every item that I've used in it is there to kind of propel what I'm trying to say. And it, I never really expect people to look at the images and be like, okay, you know, Corey's trying to say this, he's trying to tell this story you know, a lot of people take their own kind of thing away from it, which is, has always been something that I thought is interesting. But 
it's not surreal to me because it's like I've took a real moment and I've just kind of exaggerated it and made it into um I always imagine it as like a theater kind of production thing everything's like really square really symmetrical in a room like in a box that's kind of like the basis for how I start am I right to think that you create sets in real life like that's another thing that you do like you you physically get real sized pieces and photograph them yeah like um most of the sets are like i look at them and i just see like my student bedroom i was literally just shooting in the spaces that i was living in like shooting in my attic going to my mom's and shooting like in her garden like just things like that like i must be quite that's quite um like bearing a bit of your soul turning these intimate spaces into like scenes yeah oh my god it was wasn't always great like having to live in the set for like a couple of days setting up and stuff like that just things everywhere destroying my bedroom and I didn't know how I was gonna do it like realistically without making it out of paper or whatever it took in my bedroom at the time so that's what it came down to that's so poetic you actually turned your bedroom into these sets and a lot of the work features is either a version of you or an anonymous kind of person that could well be the artist and you've actually physically gone and lived in these sets that you've created you wouldn't ever know unless yeah unless someone asks you about it because it's my story and what I want to say it very quickly became like right I'm just gonna do self-portraits and I'm gonna make them say exactly what I want and it was just easier that way it was easier and it was harder like taking a picture of yourself is actually so hard trying to be behind and in front of the camera is like another thing that I don't think people really even consider. Like literally sleeping in the set, then looking at yourself on a screen and editing your body and editing the things around you. It's such a like a vanity project. <laughs> well, you could say vanity project, but it's also putting a magnifying glass in a and and it's almost like you you're a diarist or a confessor. Like it's so revealing and so brave. And I think that's why people react so strongly to your images because. There is a bit of yourself in all of them, even if it's not exactly you in the image. That's definitely how I look at them, like diary entries. I see the time in my life that I was in and, you know, what bedroom I was living in, where I was at mentally and what I'm trying to say in the image anyway. So each image is just kind of like a timestamp and a, lets me have insight on my headspace and stuff like that. So it definitely means a lot to me. I think a lot of people are straight away just fascinated by the aesthetic of it and the elements of fashion and impossible spaces, I guess, and wondering how I've done that. The idea of finding a diary or finding something that you don't exactly understand because it's written in such a personal hand, it makes them almost like puzzles to kind of explore. And I think that's another thing that makes them so interesting. Oh my God, yeah. Imagine me like going to uni as well and having to explain to my tutors about these really depressing images that I'm making and <laughs> talk about what, what my inspiration was. It's so awkward. Like I had to most of the time just be really vague about it because they are so personal to me like and what they mean and what I'm trying to say. A lot of the time I do just kind of have to let people take their own thing away from it because that's easier. <laughs> talking about these difficult scenes that you have to explain to people. When you start to introduce two characters, did you find that that was uh, a more difficult story to tell? Because when there's two people in an image, that 
it kind of breaks down some of the surrealism and it introduced more of like a linear or like a snapshot of like a story that's happening. Yeah, it became more and more like that almost unknowingly, like as I was doing more work because, you know, I was doing a lot of images where it was just me on my own. And then when I did start to do those ones where it was like interaction style images, I realized that they're a lot more like they just it felt like they were telling more of a story than it was just me on my own. And even that like came with its own complications because a lot of them are just me repeated, like having to be in several spots at several times. And that obviously comes with its own complications, but I definitely like played on that more and more, like the more work that I wanted to do, just purely because um, I felt like it was stronger. Looking at the images that you create that have more than one character in, I really do think of you as a maker of movies that don't move, like these kind of like, I'd say it was a movie still, but a movie still is actually less choreographed than this. It it does almost seem like a perfect frozen moment. Yeah, that's what it is. And that's kind of like how I've always described it to people anyway as well, like creating the perfect moment. It's like I said before, like I always imagine it to be not so much like a film, but more of like like a play, like you're watching a a show in the theatre and you're just trying to find that one like perfect moment, like still that's going to tell you the whole story of the whole play in that one dramatic kind of second. And that's like, again, like another foundation for like how I'm going to compose everything. And yeah, that's that's how I always described it. Like just trying to find that that perfect moment where everything's being told. Would it be fair to describe the moments that you use as like a volta or like a turning point in like the characters' lives? Because you don't tend to focus on moments of like reconciliation or moments of... Um, kind of like peacetime, it's normally kind of like a dramatic twist, you know, that leaves you wanting more information. Yeah, but that just links, I guess that kind of links just into what I'm trying to say and why, because a lot of the work is so cathartic and it's like, you know, me telling a a really dramatic story that I don't have the, I I can't really talk about like out loud. So I I put it in the image and that kind of says it. And yeah, I think that's why like, I don't know why it does seem so like, I guess the images always seem kind of violent or sad or like dramatic and like you say, like a turning point. The main kind of theme of all of my images is nostalgia, looking back at moments and seeing how they can be different. So even now, like I look back at them and I see like something completely different to what I saw when I made it. And I think that's like infinite, like, no matter how many times you look back at situations or like images or where you were living and what you were doing, I think you can always read it differently to depending on where you are in your life now. Yeah, and it's interesting that you use the word perfect because in some ways you could say, how is that perfect when it's remembering a traumatic event that happened so long ago? But the way that you've done it and the way that you've employed like surrealism, it's almost perfect in how you reflect your memory and understanding rather than you reflect what actually happened and how you actually looked on the day is actually a perfect reflection of nostalgia and memory. Yeah, like that that scene with the ambulances and stuff, like just looking at that takes me instantly back into that time. And even though it was like a really hard time, like the fact that I've 
managed to make this thing, you know. And I was I was very aware that it was serving a purpose as well, like focusing on the on the bad and and what that m- made me feel as I was doing it about the situation. It's kind of like gaining mastery over those bad moments, like feeling better about it, being able to look at something you've made because of it and then being like, right, I've stood up to this memory and called it by its name and and it doesn't feel as painful anymore. You've discovered how well you work collaboratively this year. How do you see yourself like going forward? All of 2020, like funnily enough, was me shooting like other people. I just went into this like collaboration world where I stopped taking pictures, you know, it became so that it wasn't all about me and I was working for everyone else. It's so strange that, you know, everything happened in the way that it did with the pandemic and everything. That was my year to like work with other people in the moments that I could. Um, But yeah, like it just became about serving like another idea and a character. And and then that's when the set really becomes the emotion as well. Cause I'm, I'm not telling like my story anymore. I mean, I'm, you know, I should probably like with Gothy as well, like it really is a collaboration. Like she has took me out of my comfort zone so much with the things that I've done. It's definitely made me like a better artist for sure. Like, cause she'll come to me with an idea and then we'll expand on it together. And we both get really excited about it. And, you know, like it's really good to have those like collaborations where you're both just kind of building on each other. Those are the best ones. As things start to open up again, what's your relationship with doing work that has a live element? Like, have you ever considered working with a theatre production? Because you clearly have an eye not just for lighting, but for set and and creating mood on that scale. It's kind of weird. Like, I never saw myself becoming this, like, you know, photographer of drag queens or, like, storyteller for other artists and other people. Like, that's not what I set out to do. And deep down, like, I don't really see myself like that. And it is, it is like, massively flattering and, and stuff when people do want to work with me. And it's exciting as well that I've had the chance to do that. But I think, you know, definitely in future... I do want to do more self-reflective stuff because it's been such a long time and, you know, we're coming out of lockdown again and I think I'll I'll still have the chance to do collaborations, but I definitely do want to tap back into that, that stuff of, you know, telling my stories again. I don't know, like, there's so many, like, artists I know that don't show the work because they're so scared of, like, being condemned on social media and stuff and... having that attention not on me for so long, I kind of miss it. I kind of miss, like, doing stuff that's for myself. So that's definitely, like, where I see my future from now. So as well as having these skills in lighting and set design, you're also, like, pro-level retoucher. Does having this awareness of an industry standard of retouching affect the way that you see bodies in the work yeah like 100 percent retouching like especially in the you know in the fashion industry that's my that's my normal job anyway like retouching images and I don't know I guess it's kind of it's a bit of a horrible thing really like because even just for a long time like understanding what the industry standard of retouching is what they expect you to do what they think you know beauty is at the time what you need to get rid of what you need to keep in what you need to change the shape of like it really does kind of dig into you and affect you um and that has kind of fed into my work but it's like I said you know 
about um, being okay with that in my own work, like changing it and and knowing that you've done that and being unapologetic about it. Um, but in terms of like retouching in like fashion and in the industry and stuff like that, for me, like it's always been like trying to keep it pared back and just doing, you know, whatever the the bare minimum is, which I know is like sounds super like social justice warrior. Like retouching is like, especially for me, so much more than just like the airbrushing and stuff. Like a lot of my images, a lot of people won't know, but I'll take like the arm from one picture, the body from another picture and the head from another picture. So that, that gothy shot we talked about before is like completely put together, like the body of the best, the best bits. I do that with a lot of my images as well, like where... I do a lot of shots and the poses aren't what I want them to be. So I kind of make it like in a weird way. And it's like learning those skills through retouching, through being like behind the scenes. So you knew I was going to ask something about fashion at some point. But how would you feel about a fashion brand approaching you and and wanting you to take on artistic direction or, or shooting products? Would you find that like upsetting your kind of ethos and the eye that you've developed or would you be willing to push yourself to do that oh my god it's it already happened 2020 it was probably the biggest scariest shoot i've ever done in my life it was for this um like underwear brand and they wanted to do like a huge stephen klein style like courtroom photo shoot and the creative um, director approached me and was like, we really love your photography and we think it would translate really well because we want it to be super queer and super dark and moody and conceptual. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like not really knowing what I was going to get myself into. And obviously like I went down there, everything was super like social distanced, really safe. We had this hired out this courtroom, but I got there and there were stylists, um, set builders, models, a, t- a full team which I am so like I, when I got there I was like oh my god I'm so out of my depth I've got to make this work I've got all these people depending on me it was so terrifying I was like sweating like trying to just be calm but um yeah in the end it was fine I just went up did it did the shoots went away but again like I don't know like it was the relationship with the creative director how comfortable he made me because I've definitely had like those collaborations where they're not you know they're not what you hoped they would be and sometimes it feels like working with some people like it's kind of like they're taking something away from you and I always strive to have the collaborations where um it just feels good and it feels like a, more of a friendship like I know that sounds kind of like <laughs> weird but no, it's, re- it's really important especially as an independent and queer artist it is important because I w- I've mentioned this a couple of times um in interviews on this show about protecting your magic in the industry and how there's people that don't that can't tap into your psyche because of their lives being so different or their age being different or their attitudes towards I don't know like gender and sexuality are so different that you can't connect as friends and that way when you make work it's like a professional outcome not like a shared uh, passion project which it needs to be a little bit yeah and I think that reads through as well like final products like I think people can definitely see the difference between something that's made with love and something that you've made and you've been really excited about it and happy about it as opposed to something that's been a bit of a struggle and a bit like you know I feel like not 100% about this like people definitely read that it's been so nice having you on the show and I appreciate how honest and um, and the insight that you've allowed us to your work. Uh, so 
really thank you so much it's been so fantastic talking to you oh, no worries i got to talk about myself for an hour so <laughs> it's fine <laughs> i loved speaking to Corey and getting to ask some questions about the images he creates that are so mysterious and intrinsically packed with meaning and feeling like my other guests you should definitely get on instagram and check out at Corey Mullaney for Corey's fabulous visual work not only did Corey kindly allow me to interview him for this episode we also got the opportunity to collaborate and create an image that is the cover art for this month's show i just want to thank you again Corey, for being involved in the making of this piece it is so beautiful if you've not had a chance to see it then make sure you check out at accessories pod on instagram where i have posted the image we created you will not regret it it's beautiful and it features a hat made by moi and some absolute wizardry by Corey. because it takes a wizard to make me look pretty in drag <laughs> With that said, it brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you all of my amazing guests for taking part and allowing me to interview and get to know a little bit more about your artistry and relationship with fashion. Thank you to the audio team at fullybeat.com. Bertie, Alec and Georgie, you are my heroes. If you enjoyed this podcast and you're looking for my recommendation for something else to listen to, then give Tea with Fee a try. Ophelia Love, the host, is fabulous and she interviews the creme de la creme of British drag talent and recaps on UK drag race and just has a good old gossip with the gals. It's one of my favourite podcasts and she was really helpful when I was putting together my first episode, so give that a try. We just have time now for the last word in fashion. This month coming from the head of fashion merchandising at St Andrews University with some advice for people in the early stages of their fashion career. It's Professor Dean Spiran. Well, recent studies show that more and more ladies are finding their feet in the fashion industry later in life these days. In a sector typically associated with young faces, it's becoming less uncommon to come across interns in their early 90s and trainee craftswomen pushing 100 years old. University leavers may want to follow in these amazing women's footsteps and amass a lifetime of savings before making the leap into their dream career. 